If you would, I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 21. As we near the end of our time in the Gospel of John, uh, Lord willing, we'll be in John this week and next week as well. Uh, today we'll be in the first uh, 17 verses of the Gospel of John, John 21, verses 1 through 17. John writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This was now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now, in these verses that we're considering the this morning, we find the Apostle 
John tying up some loose ends in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus and bringing his gospel to a conclusion. And in doing so, he recounts this third appearance of Jesus to his disciples. And as we uh, consider these verses this morning, we'll do so under three main headings. First of all, the event itself. The event itself. We'll consider what happened here. Secondly, we'll see Peter's recommissioning. Peter's recommissioning. And thirdly, we'll consider that question that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? So we have the, the event itself, Peter's recommissioning, and then the question, do you love me? And so first, the event itself. Chapter 20, as we've seen in recent weeks, was John's account of the appearances that Jesus had made to the disciples on that first Easter Sunday when he had risen from the dead. And then the chapter ended with that account of his appearance to Thomas and the rest of the disciples one week later. And John had followed those accounts by telling us his purpose in writing, namely that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, or alternatively could be translated that the Christ is Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And now he proceeds to tell us of the next occasion on which Jesus appeared to a group of the disciples. Down in verse 14 of our text, he describes this appearance as the third time that Jesus was manifested to his disciples. And indeed, if you look back to chapter 20, the first appearance was chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. The second appearance was chapter 20, verses 26 through 29. And so this morning here in chapter 21, we find this, this third appearance. Now, the setting for this was the Sea of Tiberias. According to verse 1, more commonly, this is known to us as the Sea of Galilee, just a different name for the same body of water. After Jesus had risen from the dead, you may recall how in Matthew 28, verse 10, he had said to the women to whom he appeared, he said, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. There they will see me. And... As we can observe here in John chapter 21, the disciples did just that. They departed from Jerusalem. After Jesus had appeared to them twice in Jerusalem, they departed and they did, in fact, go to Galilee. And as Jesus said, he would show himself to them. And we see that happening here in chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. So there they are in Galilee, according to the instruction of Jesus. And as they were there... Waiting for Jesus to come, Simon Peter decided to go fishing. That, after all, had been his livelihood before following Jesus, and there's nothing shameful in doing some honest work while waiting for the Lord to appear to them. And Simon Peter is not alone. There are six other disciples with him. There's Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, who are James and John, and two others whose names are not given. Thus there were seven in all. Simon announces he's going fishing. The others join him. They fish all night, but caught nothing. Sometimes fishing can be like that. Peter and James and John, of course, are no strangers to the experiences of fishermen. And for all we know, perhaps these other disciples who were there that day were also fishermen by trade. We don't know all of the, the backgrounds of, of all of the disciples, but it could be that all seven of these men were career fishermen. We don't know for sure. But anyways, after a fruitless night of fishing, there appeared a man on the land. You see that in verse 4, that Jesus stood there on the beach, but the disciples did not know 
that it was Jesus. But it was Jesus. And he asked them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? Of course, they didn't. And so Jesus calls out and says, cast over on the right side of the boat, and there you will find a catch. They cast over on the right side, and the catch was there. And they caught so many that at the first they were not able to haul in the net because of the great number of fish. Now, at this point, at least some of these disciples who were there may have been having a moment where they were saying, wait a minute, we've seen something like this before. And indeed, some of them had seen something like this before. If you think back to Luke chapter 5, we read there of how Jesus was teaching by the lake of Gennesaret, which is also another name for the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is teaching there on shore. There's a couple of boats there. Jesus gets into Simon's boats and asks him to, to put out a little ways from the land so he can have some, have some breathing room. He's there in the boat. He's teaching the crowds who are there on the land. And when he had finished teaching, Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. What did Simon say that time? He said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. He did, and Luke tells us they caught so many fish that his nets began to break. He signaled to his partners who were over in the other boat. They came over to help. The fish filled up both boats, so much so that they began to sink. And you may recall that on that occasion, Simon had said to Jesus, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. But Jesus instead replied and said, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Luke tells us, Luke 5, 11, When they uh, had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, surely then, here for, for Peter, James, and John, they were all three present that occasion in Luke chapter 5, and perhaps some of these other disciples were there on that occasion too, they must have been having a moment here in John 21 where they were saying, hang on a minute, this all seems very strangely familiar to us. Now obviously there are, there are differences between what happened in Luke 5 and what happened here in John 21, but at the same time there's enough overlap that we would think that these men would start thinking. And here in verse 7, we find that that seems to have been the case. So if you look at the end of verse 6, so they cast and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Then verse 7, therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And so it seems, seems like John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was starting to, to put the pieces together. It doesn't doesn't appear that John was able to, to see clearly and recognize, okay, that looks like Jesus. seems like John was kind of putting the pieces together because of what had happened here and was able to recognize, okay, this man on the beach who told us to cast over to the right side, this is the Lord. And in keeping with his personal characteristic, it's Peter who jumps out of the boat and into the sea and went to land to see Jesus while the rest of the disciples are left behind dragging in the net full of fish. And when they get to the beach, what do they find? They find that there's already charcoal fire there burning with fish cooking on it. Jesus invites them to add some of the fish that they have caught to the ones that he was already cooking. And Peter helps to pull in the untorn net and there's 153 fish that were caught by it. Jesus invites them to have breakfast, and he gives them 
bread and fish, according to verse 13. These are the, the circumstances of this event of Jesus' third appearance to the disciples after his resurrection. And though the history of the event is pretty straightforward, I think we would do well to think about these thematic connections that exist between this moment here and another event in the ministry of Jesus. Now already we've seen the thematic connections between John 21 and Luke chapter 5 when Peter was called to follow Jesus, called to be a fisher of men, but there's also a connection here with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus had miraculously multiplied loaves and fish for the crowd on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. We find that back in John 6, verses 1 through 15. And here we see Jesus feeding his disciples with fish and bread. Now we don't know where Jesus got these fish and where he got this bread from. We don't know if he created it or uh, just what he did to get it and have it laid out for the disciples, but somehow he had it and he fed it to the disciples. It was bread and fish again on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Surely these events here in John 21 must have turned the minds of the disciples back to some of the things which they had experienced before with Jesus. Surely Peter must have been reminded of his calling to be a fisher of men. Surely they were reminded of the miraculous powers of Jesus. Surely they saw in this event several things that turned their minds back to the past. And beyond the facts of the case, we may, we may well wonder whether there is any typological significance to these events. Are these events, in other words, simply the history of what happened to which we can say, okay, got it, now I know what happened, and then move on? Or are we supposed to see in these events some signification of something greater? Well, interpreters of this passage have often thought so, have thought that there is some, uh, some typological or some symbolical significance to what is happening here. And though I certainly could not support every conclusion that has been reached on that front, it is at least worth pointing out that Jesus has already, in his ministry, established a metaphorical connection between catching fish and catching men by the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus had showed them once before, and he showed them also here once again, that he has the power to make fruitless labors profitable. Right? They, Luke chapter 5, they fished all night, caught nothing. John 21, they fished all night, caught nothing. Both occasions, Jesus says, hey, go out, let down for a catch, cast over on the right side, they haul in a big catch. Jesus can make fruitless labors profitable. And therefore, Jesus can make their man fishing profitable if they will follow his command. He had already told them, John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Moreover, Jesus had also told a parable, Matthew 13, 47 through 50, in which he compared the kingdom of heaven to a dragnet cast into the sea. If you were here with us this morning in Sunday school, we, we talked about this. There's this dragnet cast into the sea. It gathered fish of every kind, and when it was filled, it was drew up onto the beach. They sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. And this is how things will be at the end of the age, when the angels come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous 
and cast them into the furnace of fire. And so at the very least, I think we can at least draw some lessons from this historical event here in John 21 and apply them into that realm which Jesus has already drawn metaphorical and parabolical connections. And thus, we can be reminded that by the power of Christ, the labors of his people become fruitful, and by the power of Christ and the labors of his people, a net full of fish will be gathered in and brought into the kingdom of God on the last day. And so these were the the circumstances of Jesus' third appearing to his disciples. But then he moves on to speaking directly to Peter. And this brings us then to our second point, which is Peter's recommissioning. And so in verses 15 through 17, Jesus asks Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then three times, Peter responds in the affirmative, that he does love Jesus. And three times then, Jesus charges Peter after his affirmation of love, Jesus charges him to tend his sheep. That's, that's a thumbnail sketch of what happened here and helpfully gives us the lay of the land. But if you read verses 15 through 17 carefully, you may notice that there's a, a variety in the conversation. It's not always the exact same question that's asked. And so for starters, in verse 15, Jesus asks the question to Peter this way. He says, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? What does that mean? Do you love me more than these? At first blush, this seems like like an odd question. Why would Jesus ask him this question like that? But upon further consideration of Peter and his relationship with Jesus, this might not be such an odd question after all. Peter had once seemingly put himself forward as the most committed disciple. As recorded in Matthew 26, 33, he said, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. In other words, Jesus, I love you more than these. These guys may all fall by the wayside, but but not me. And now, Jesus asks him if he loves him more than the rest of the disciples love him. Now, I think that we should read Peter's response when he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, is only a partial answer to that question. I think Peter here is affirming his love for Jesus, but not necessarily saying, yes, Lord, I love you more than all the rest of these guys. Because I think Peter has probably learned some humility by this point in his life. A second thing here to notice is the variety of ways in which Jesus responds to Peter's affirmation of love. He says in verse 15, "Tend my lambs. Second time, verse 16, he says, shepherd my sheep. Third time, verse 17, he says, tend my sheep. And though there is a variety in the words that Jesus uses there, I take the meaning to be all one and the same. That if Peter loves Jesus, then he should be about those things that Jesus has commanded him to be about. He should be shepherding and tending the flock of Jesus. Which is to say that Peter, as an apostle, was to be a pastor to Christ's people. He was to be nourishing them on the truth of the word of God. To use that imagery from Ezekiel 34 that our brother Tom read for us, Peter was to be strengthening the sickly, healing the diseased, binding up the broken, bringing back the scattered, and seeking out the lost. And it's noteworthy what Peter himself would would later say. And we, we read that this morning together, 1 Peter 5 
where he said, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In other words, by the time he wrote the letter of 1 Peter, Peter had certainly taken to heart this exhortation from Jesus to tend his sheep, to shepherd his sheep, to tend his lambs. Peter got it. And so Peter writes to other fellow shepherds as a fellow shepherd along with them and exhorts them to shepherd the flock of God, to prove to be an example, to exercise oversight voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. And though uh, it usually does not stand out extremely uh, in our English translations, there is a also a variety of terminology used for love here in these verses, verses 15 through 17. In verses 15 and 16, Jesus uses the Greek word agapao, which is translated as love, while he uses the word phileo in verse 17. Peter, on his part, uses the word phileo all throughout. Now, some have understood uh, some finer nuance to be conveyed by the variations here in the text, given that we have different words for love used in the Greek uh, and translated as love into English. I suspect on my part that that's actually overreading the text. Uh, agape, as it is used in uh, Greek, is not necessarily a, a higher form of love than uh, phileo. And so, just for instance, agapao is used uh, in the Septuagint, the Old Testament Greek translation uh, to describe Amnon's love for Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, a wickedly base form of love, to put it mildly. And John himself has a tendency to use different words at different times with apparently the same meaning. And so, for instance, Jesus is loved by the Father, and that love is described by phileo in John 5.20. It's described by agapao in John 3.35. And so given, given all of that, that John himself mixes uh, the words that he uses and uh, the, uh, the, the, the Greek background, I, my suspicion is that trying to read some finer nuance here uh, is probably to, to miss John's meaning. That's probably over-reading what is actually here in the text, and it's probably something that neither John nor the Holy Spirit intended for us to see. Another thing to notice here is the threefold repetition of Jesus' question. Jesus asks this question to Peter three times. Just as Peter denied Jesus three times, so now Jesus asks him three times, Do you love me? And Peter affirms three times that he does love Jesus. This is what we could call Peter's reinstatement into ministry, his reinstatement as an apostle. And this is given for our benefit so that we may know that Peter had not disqualified himself forever as an apostle because he had denied Jesus. Despite the depth to which he had plummeted, he is now restored so that the fellow Disciples of Peter and the future church would know that Peter was as legitimate as any other apostle. 
And not only that, this incident shows us the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to weak and sinful people. If Jesus can forgive Peter, and not only forgive him, but also now commission him for service, we begin to see something of the the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this, we see that the grace of Christ is not only sufficient for Peter, but it's also sufficient for us, for our weakness, and for our sins. And you notice there in verse 17 that in asking Peter the third time, we see there that Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him this question the third time. Most likely, this grief sprang from the fact that this repeated questioning may have almost made it seem like Jesus didn't believe him. And Peter was grieved also because it probably reminded him that he had denied Jesus three times. Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, Do you love me? Peter was grieved by this line of questioning And Jesus was the one who caused the grief. But we need to acknowledge that in doing this, Jesus was not at fault. Not at all. Knowing all things, Jesus knew that it would grieve Peter. And yet he asked him that question the third time and grieved him anyways. And this was for Peter's good. And our Lord deals with us in the same way. Sometimes in disciplining us, he grieves us. But this is for our good and not for our harm. And the result is that we are strengthened and made more holy. And so we read in Hebrews 12, 11 of the grief which God the Father brings when he chastises us for our sin. And the writer to the Hebrews says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful or could be translated grievous. Yet to those who are trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We naturally don't like to be grieved. It's not a joyful thing to be made sorrowful. But we need to understand that when we fall down into sin, the process of getting back up involves sorrow. It involves grief for the wrong that we have done. It's been said that the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. And that often is the case. It brings us sorrow. Sometimes this sorrow comes when our conscience becomes sensitive to the fact that we've sinned, when we're reflecting on our life and our actions and our attitude, and the Holy Spirit convicts us as we're reflecting on our conduct. This can hurt. Sometimes this sorrow comes by means of of hearing the Word of God, either reading it for yourself or hearing it expounded and explained in a sermon. You find that a particular part applies to you and that you've been sinful in some way or another, and that can hurt. There's a side of you that would rather not have heard what you just heard. Sometimes this sorrow comes by way of a personal rebuke. Somebody who knows you and somebody who knows your sins and yet loves you enough to tell you about it, and it can hurt. It can grieve us. But notice also how Peter responded to this. He didn't criticize our Lord for asking him this question the third time. He didn't get huffy and just stomp off because Jesus hurt his feelings. Instead, grievous though he was, grieved though he was, he answered the Lord's question. He humbled himself and responded to a question that hurt him. And he answered it and responded to it with the humility that was required of him. 
And brothers and sisters, our response should be the same way when we are convicted of our sin. Our responsibility is to be humble and to receive the truth even when it hurts, even when it makes us miserable. Our responsibility is to respond with faith and love to Christ and with true repentance for sins. We must never get angry or self-righteous when we're confronted with convicting truth. And even thus it was with Paul and the Corinthians. He says to them, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, he says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Sometimes the Lord does bring sorrow and grief to his people, but it is for our good. It produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. And so when you find yourself grieved, whether by personal rebuke or by the Spirit, convicting your conscience and self-examination or the Spirit using the Word of God to convict your heart, don't get huffy. Don't stomp off in a rage, either literally or figuratively. Receive the truth, however much it may cause you grief at the time. Receive the truth, because the truth will set you free. God disciplines you for your good, that you may share in his holiness. It's for our good. And I think it's also worth pointing out here how... In this interaction between Jesus and Peter, we also see uh, strong evidence of the, the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, que- the very question itself that Jesus asks to Peter, do you love me, implies the deity of Christ. This is the question by which Peter was reinstated. We're required to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. But yet, instead of asking him, do you love God, Jesus says to Peter, Do you love me? Now, if we as a church were at some point to restore a penitent believer who had been under church discipline, it would make no sense for any one of us here to ask such a one the question, Do you love me? That would be a question that is off the table. Obviously, they ought to love me. They ought to love you. They ought to love us all. But that's not the question we ought to be asking when we're trying to restore someone. But it is the question that Jesus asks when he's restoring Peter. And as such, this is an indirect evidence for the deity of Christ. The first and foremost commandment is to love the Lord our God. And Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And there's also an argument for the deity of Christ to be found in Peter's words in verse 17. When he says to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. He said, Lord, you know all things. Who knows all things but God alone? And Jesus receives this word from Peter with no rebuke toward him, no attempt to correct him. Jesus receives this word as the truth, that indeed he does know all things. And therefore Jesus is God. And so Peter declares his love for Jesus. Jesus reinstated Peter to his pastoral and apostolic office. He called Peter to tend his sheep, but... You and I would do well to consider this searching question. 
which Jesus posed to Peter. We would do well to take this question and apply it directly to ourselves, as if Jesus were saying to us as individuals, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? What would you say? What would I say? And remember, there's no fooling Jesus. He knows all things. So this is our third point for this morning, this this question, do you love me? Do you love Jesus? So what about you? Do you love him? I hope that every person in this room would say yes. But let's consider why we should love Jesus, and let's consider what it looks like to love Jesus. So why should we love Jesus? I think broadly we can, we can break this up into to two parts. We should, we should love Jesus because of who he is and because of what he has done, because of, because of his identity, who he is, and because of what he has done. And we can think of that, what he has done in terms of what he's done in the past, what he's doing in the present, what he will do in the future. So as to his identity, our Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal and only begotten Son of God. As Paul describes it, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are hold together. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he is the one who has loved us by condescending to be made in our likeness, taking upon him a human nature like ours so as to save us, saved us by becoming a man, by living a sinless life and going to the cross as a substitute in our place, the just for the unjust, his robes for ours as we we sang about earlier today. He came to bring us to God so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we might have life, so that we might have eternal life. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins, and he rose again the third day to show that the debt had been paid in full. And in rising again, he is the guarantee that all who trust in him will be raised from the dead as well. Jesus ascended into heaven and took his seat at the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, at the right hand of God the Father, and he is there even now as a high priest and an advocate for all who trust in him. This is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus is still doing. He is still our advocate, still our high priest, still living to intercede to God for us. He's still our advocate, such that if anyone sins, he pleads for them with the Father. And one day, Jesus will return for his people. All of the dead will be raised, and Jesus will bring forth final justice. The wickedness of the wicked will be condemned, and a just judgment will be given to them. For all who have trusted in Christ, it will be manifested that their sins were fully paid for by his own sacrifice for them. And on that day, we'll see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 11, 3-5, where we find, He will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, He'll make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Christ is coming again to administer true justice 
long awaited for, long prayed for, true justice will be established that day when judgment is rendered by Jesus Christ. So this is who Jesus is, the eternal, only begotten Son of God who became a man to save us. This is what Christ has done. He lived sinlessly, went to the cross, died, rose again the third day, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. This is what he is doing. He is our advocate and high priest, and this is what he will do. He will come again, raise his own and his enemies from the grave, bring his own into his Father's kingdom, and condemn his enemies to eternal death. This is Christ. He's gentle. He's humble in heart. He does not break a bruised reed nor extinguish a dimly burning wick. He's forgiving, full of mercy and grace, and also justice. Do you love him? Do you love him? Now, how can we tell if we love Jesus? Is there any way to tell? Well, just think for a moment how you can tell if you love someone else. We know what it is to love other people. Father, mother, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, close friend, spouse, child. We know what it's like to to love other people. What is it like to love them? What are some indications that you love them? Well, there's a, a heart fondness for them. There's a warmth. There is a desire to be with them. We like to hear good stories about about who they are and about what they've done. We like perhaps telling stories about who they are and what they have done. Uh, Back when I was in college, I guess I told so many stories about my grandfather that one of my friends said, I feel like I know that guy. We, We like to tell stories about the people that we love. We like spending time with them. We like to communicate with them. We serve them and do those things which appropriately show our love for them. And in many respects, it is the same with Jesus. If we love Jesus, there will be a heart fondness for him. There will be a desire to speak to him, a desire to speak of others about him. How wonderful would it be if we talked to others so much about Jesus that they said, because of our testimony, I feel like I know that guy. Wouldn't that that be wonderful if we're telling about Christ and what he has done and if our hearts are so filled with love for him that in talking about him, Others listen to us and they're like, man, I feel like I know him because of what you have told me about him. There'll be a desire to serve Christ, a desire to demonstrate our love for him. And if we truly love Christ, these desires will not remain only as desires, but they will be put forth into action. Love that is truly love will, will manifest and show itself. And so, beloved, the question is simple. Do you love Christ? Now, I would not disparage the importance of doctrine and biblically informed theology for all of the world, but if our Christianity simply stops at doctrine, knowledge of truths of the Bible in our heads, then we are lost. J.C. Ryle put it well when he said that true saving Christianity is not the mere believing of a certain set of opinions and holding a certain set of notions. Its essence is knowing, trusting, and loving a certain living person who died for us, even Christ the Lord. If we do not love Jesus, it is simply the evidence that we do not know him and that we do not trust him. Our Lord said to the Jews in John eight forty two, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. 
if God is our Father, if we're saved, we're going to love Jesus. If we don't love Jesus, we're not saved. We're not Christians at all. Which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 16.22, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be cursed. But alternatively, he says at the end of Ephesians 6, Grace be with all those who love our Lord with incorruptible love. And so, do you love Christ? Many of you do. I do not doubt it. Praise God for this. This love for Christ is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit within you. And I'm happy, so happy that you love Christ. But remember, this is nothing for which you can reach around and pat yourself on the back. In loving Christ, you are only an unworthy servant doing as you've been commanded to do. And so let there be no pride in this. Let there be no sense of thinking, mission accomplished. But rather, let there be a sense of pressing on further to know the Lord, to serve him more, to love him more. Press on to know yourself more as well and see your sins, grievous though it may be, as you're convicted more and more about your sins. But when we see them for what they are, the grace and love of Christ towards us will be that much more amazing and that much more wonderful because we will know how Christ has taken even these things that we are now convicted of and now seeing. We'll know that Christ has taken these away from us and forgiven us for them. And as we do this more and more, we'll be like that woman in Luke 7, Luke 7, 47, who was forgiven much and in turn loved much in return. Our love is often cold, and even when it's not cold, it's still defective. Our love will never justify us and never be the means by which our sins are forgiven. But when we realize just how much Christ has forgiven us, and just how unworthy we are, that will lead us on to love Christ more. And loving him more will lead us on to serving him more and walking more closely with him. And in this way, we will grow more in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so may it be so with every one of us. Let's not shut our eyes when we feel convicted of sin, but let's stare our sin full on in the face and know that Christ has taken it from us and therefore love him more. Now, there may be some this morning who, upon careful consideration, find that as things currently stand, you don't actually love Jesus Christ. And in failing to love him, you currently stand accursed, under, under that curse that Apostle Paul laid out in 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. This is dangerous. This is the road to destruction, the road to condemnation. But in the preaching of the gospel this morning, I bring you good news. And the good news is this, that God the Father loved us while we were yet sinners and sent Christ to die for us while we were still ungodly. John would say it this way in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The good news of the gospel is that our salvation doesn't start with our love for God. Praise God that it doesn't. It starts with God's love for us, demonstrating that love in the sending of his Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has also loved us. And the call of the gospel is for us to respond to the love of God which he has demonstrated for us in his Son. This call is for us to repent, to believe in Jesus, to turn away from our sins, and to trust in Christ. And so put God in his rightful place. Love him. 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Put Jesus Christ in his rightful place. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Turn away from your sins and believe the gospel today. And in believing, see the loveliness of Jesus Christ. And in seeing his loveliness, begin loving him today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we know that our hearts are often cold. We, we fail to love you as we ought. That is the first and greatest commandment. And yet, though we violate it, you still love us. You still call us to love you. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us. Fill our hearts with love for you, O Father. Fill our hearts with love for your Son, love for the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that we would recognize that we have been forgiven much, that we would love much in return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.